0: You are now listening to the February 11th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms This Is My Song, sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Psalms This Is My Song.
1: Hello, this is Terry with Psalms This Is My Song, a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. Have you read the story of Job? I couldn't believe what happened to him within a day while I was reading the story of Job. It was unbelievably shocking. I couldn't help but wonder how he could be so calm while suffering those hardships. Is it a real story? But Job is not a fictional character, but a real person in the Bible. Job experienced losing all his fortune and wealth in a day. The sadder part is that he lost his seven sons and three daughters on the same day. In a few days, he suffered from painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. How painfully itchy! Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself. Do you remember how Job's wife cursed him? Job never sinned by charging God with wrongdoing, and yet his wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Even Job said to his wife that she is talking like a foolish woman. However, I have a hard time judging Job's wife as having little faith as I would complain immediately when I am in a difficult situation. Therefore, I wouldn't judge Job's wife recklessly because she reminds me of myself. How long can you keep your faith? How low can you go to keep your faith? Could you cherish Jesus Christ more than your life? Could you still be faithful to Jesus Christ if you lose your life? Today, in Psalm This Is My Song, I would like to talk about the psalmist's confession who cherished Christ more than his life. This is Psalm 63. The author of Psalm 63 is David. David wrote Psalm 63 in the wilderness of Jerusalem when he escaped from his own son Absalom. The wilderness that David escaped to was a desolate and dry land. David was the king of Israel with all the praise from the people, but fled to the wilderness because he was chased by his own son. If you were David in this situation, what would you say to God? You might say, Lord, how could it be? What is this? I was the king, but I am fleeing now. I am so embarrassed to face my people. Please put things back the way they were before all this trouble. Wouldn't that be your plea to God? How do you think David talks to God in the wilderness? I will read Psalm chapter 63, verses 3-5 in the New International Version Bible. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Isn't David's praise amazing? He was fleeing from his son, and he would have felt nothing was enough in the desolate and dry land. He couldn't eat well or drink enough. However, instead of complaining about his hunger, he praises the Lord by saying that his soul is filled, satisfied, and full of joy how could he do that? That is because David only wants God himself. It was not the advantages of God, but the fact that God is his Lord and that everything David wants. The reason Job trusted God in the midst of his suffering was because he also fixated his eyes on God. He didn't focus on his wealth or his children, but focused on God. Job didn't care about the benefits of God. However, Job's wife was different. She focused on the things that God gave her. As soon as she lost all the things from God, she cursed God. What are you focusing on? Jesus himself or beneficial things from Jesus? David loved his Lord more than his life. I am envious of David. I want us to love the Lord deeper, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. May you love God more sincerely with all your heart in 2023, and may Psalm 63 cause both of us to praise God. I would like to close Psalm, my confession today, by reading Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depth of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouth of liars will be silenced.
0: is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Cavalry Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is giving evidence for your faith. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
2: Acts chapter 17, and we're going to look at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. When Paul visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, kind of around 50 AD, it was already a very large city. It was like 200,000 people there. We see Paul's strategy. Paul will go to a place and intentionally share the gospel where it will go viral. Knowing this about Thessalonica, we see that as Paul shares the gospel, the message is going to move through the empire on land, through those highways, on sea, spreading quickly across the Roman Empire, going places where Paul could never, ever think to go in one lifetime. Okay, that being said, now enter Paul and Silas. They left Luke and Timothy, along with uh, some other godly brothers and and women, uh, to take care of the church that had started in Philippi. So Luke stayed back, Timothy stayed back, and Paul and Silas moved on. Their goal was to go to Thessalonica, passing through two cities on the way. And so we read in verse 1, they passed through one city, then they passed through another, and then they finally got to their destination here in Thessalonica. It was about a 33-mile journey from Philippi to the next city. Then there was another journey of 30 miles from one city to another city, and then the last uh, journey was about 37 miles to, to uh, get to their their location each city was about a day's walk apart think about covering 35 miles in a day again that's a lot isn't it so I have to wonder this too I wonder how do you it had to be an especially hard trip for Paul and Silas do you remember what happened to them in Philippi not long before this they were arrested, and they were beaten with rods many times. They were thrown into prison. Remember, the angel opened the door. Remember all of that? And the Philippian jailer thought his prisoners should have escaped. He was going to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do that. The Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his whole family got saved. And the church was born there in that town. But Paul and Silas probably had broken ribs. They probably, their muscles were bruised. Their backs were probably black and blue and purple. And they're walking these roads. They're carrying stuff. Not every place is just a smooth surface, and they're making this journey, and Paul left his doctor behind, didn't he? That's how much he cared for the Philippians, was this, yeah, I could use you, Dr. Luke, right now a whole lot, but I'm going to have you stay and take care of this church. What a trip they must have met, 100 miles, a grueling trip for them, I'm sure, Now, Paul's first priority when he came to a city was to go to a synagogue and teach. They had the custom of allowing there to be a time during the synagogue service on the Sabbath day, Saturday, uh, for a visiting teacher or rabbi to be able to have a time to speak. And so, Paul took advantage of these times. Of course, he was a very learned Pharisee, had been a Pharisee, which meant he was an expert in the Scripture. So... Paul got up and he spoke, and he did this because also the Jews had the advantage over Gentiles in that they had the sacred writings. The Jews were prepped by God because he had given them the sacred writings. The Bible says they were entrusted with the very words of God, or the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. Everything so far that God communicated verbally, written, speaking to his prophets, had already been written and given to the Jews. So they had the benefit of the sacred writings. And so Paul went in, as was his custom on the Sabbath day, and he reasoned with them with the scripture. Now, they were familiar with the scriptures because Every week, the the scriptures were read to them in the synagogue. Now, nobody had Bibles like you do. So as I said, this was one of the reasons why Paul always made his fellow Jews a priority first. Another important reason was uh, Paul knew that God had made the promise of a Messiah to the Jews, right? Supposed to be the Jewish Messiah. And so... Reading the scriptures, some of them were familiar with some predictions of the coming of the Messiah. Generation after generation, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. We're told that anytime time a little Jewish boy was born, there was the hope that he would be the Messiah. And just as Jews in the first century were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, so do Jews today. There are 13 principles of Jewish faith which embody the, the basic tenets of Judaism. It's much like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed is for us, you know, capturing the basic tenets of our faith, beliefs. And these 13 principles of faith are, are included in every single Jewish prayer book they are read at the end of the Friday night service every single week, and they're read at the end of every festival. And so these, these are the 13 tenets that are read, principles that are read. Principle number 12 is this. I believe by complete faith in the coming of the Messiah. Even though he tarry and waiting, in spite of that, I will still wait expectantly for him each day that he will come. I'm waiting. Basic precept, principle of the faith was I'm waiting for the Messiah. And though he hasn't come, I'm still waiting in expectation and faith that he will. That's your religious Jew today. So they were waiting in Paul's time for the Messiah waiting today for the Messiah. And many rabbis had encountered difficulty because in their study of the scriptures, they couldn't reconcile two conflicting predictions concerning the Messiah. One group of predictions in the Bible was that the Messiah would come and he would suffer and that he would die. He would bear people's sins. He would... And... The other group of predictions was that the Messiah would come in glory, he would reign, he would bring worldwide peace, he would establish uh, the throne of David and the kingdom of Israel. So how do, you, how, do these two, how do these two mix? And so they came up with a solution that there must be two Messiahs, one that suffers and one that comes in glory. Well, The solution to that, of course, Paul knew, and he understood their problems, and so Paul expanded the scriptures, and he proved that both of the types of messiahs were actually one messiah, Jesus Christ, and he showed how, yes, the messiah would come the first time, the same messiah would suffer and die, but the same messiah would come back in glory, verses 2 and 3, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them, I want you to, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. what did he do for three weeks? It says he reasoned, he explained, and he proved and he proclaimed. Paul, just like Jesus, took the Old Testament scriptures and he showed that Jesus was shown throughout the Old Testament. It says, Paul looked back at two. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and then proving. Proving. Proving means to give evidence. As we're teaching the Word of God, giving evidence is an important thing to do. Now, proving also means to bring alongside, to bring alongside. It's the idea of, okay, I have um, my Bible. Give me a Bible. Somebody got a Bible. Anybody here have a Bible? Oh, everybody has a Bible. The phone won't. Okay, give me your phone. I'll be techie. So so, so you're saying, well, what about this? I sit down, well, let's lay this side by side. Let's lay this alongside, and we're going to see what the truth is. And so Paul would prove the Scriptures. He would give evidence that Jesus was the Messiah from the Scriptures. Now, I have to think, what might some of those Scriptures be that Paul would have shared with them. Well, here are some of the scriptures that Paul most likely used in his discussions. I don't know, I wasn't there, but I think he most likely took them to Psalm 22, which is page 457. If you guys would go to Psalm 4, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, written A 1,000 years before Christ. David is writing this, but he is writing this. Holy Spirit has come upon him as he is writing this psalm, and he is writing as the Messiah. He's not the Messiah, but he is speaking the words of the Messiah. I'm going to read a significant portion of this. Psalm 22, we'll start with verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off from saving me from the words of my groaning? I want you to think about what does this sound like? Setting together this alongside Jesus' life. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and on the presence of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. A worm, uh, what he's talking about, there was a worm. He's talking about that if you crushed it, it looked like blood. I'm bloody, he says, and not a man, scorned by all mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. This child could believe even before he was old enough. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. All his disciples run. Oops, I'm giving this away about who this is, right? Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. This speaks of the Roman soldiers around Jesus. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of what death. Verse sixteen: For dogs encompass me; a company of evildoers encircle me. They have what gain? Pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now this, he's saying, save me, save me. And now he has been saved. You have rescued me from the mouth of the lion. Who do you think that would be? You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And now he said he died. He said, um, um, uh, it brought me unto death, remember, right above. And he says, but I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Well, how how would this Messiah who died, obviously, it's predicted he died, then after that be able to tell in the midst of the congregation the praises of God? How could that be? The Messiah would have to what? Rise from the dead. He would have to live again. And he said, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried out to him. Okay, I see 10 prophecies fulfilled here that were predictions, 10 predictions that were fulfilled at the cross. You you saw a lot of them, didn't you? You saw a whole lot of them. He says, um, now, because they're there, they mock me, I'm crucified. I, my bones are all out of joint. I can see all my bones. I'm thirsty. Remember, his mouth is dried up. He asked something to drink. His, his heart was melted like wax, blood, and water came out of his heart. The Roman soldiers surround him. Pharisees and all are mocking him. They gamble for his clothing and uh, et cetera. It goes on and on. But the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is what stands out to me. Because if you were a rabbi and you were teaching your students, um, in those days, you memorized scripture. You would memorize whole books of the Bible. You're saying, you're kidding me. There wasn't other things to do. You didn't have, you know, your cell phone. You didn't have your streaming videos and stuff. I mean, this is what people did And so the disciples would know. And if their rabbi said, he would say the first line of something. Like, we would say, uh, let's sing a mighty fortress. Do we know what that song is? Yeah, I don't have to tell you every word. A mighty fortress is our God. Let's look at, and I would, the rabbi would say, just. My God, my God, why have you should forsaken me? Uh, that's all he would have to say. All the students would know, oh, Psalm 22. And so as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he directs everyone to Psalm 22. And anybody with any brains would have seen that what Psalm 22 predicted was happening to this man on the cross, because he was the Messiah people weren't thinking straight. I think another passage that Paul would have surely shown them would be found in Isaiah chapter 53, which yes, is page 613. Isaiah chapter 53. Of course, I think he would have pointed them to Verses in Isaiah that says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I think it would have shown them the scripture that says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel. I'm sure all of these scriptures, he would have shown them, set Jesus' life alongside these scriptures. But Isaiah chapter 53 is very significant because it's all speaking about the Messiah. Now, Jews today will tell you oh, no, this passage is just talking about the sufferings of Israel and the sufferings that Israel has had, past and present. No, it's not the context. If, if you read the chapter before, it's not talking about Israel. It's talking about the Lord's righteous servant, a person, not a group of people. And so what about this righteous servant of the Lord that comes to the people of God? What happens to him? Verse, chapter 53, verse 1, who is believed but is heard from us? "'To whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? "'For he,' this is the righteous servant, "'for he is the Messiah, okay? "'He grew up before God like a young plant, "'like a root out of dry ground. "'He had no former majesty that we should look at him, "'no beauty that we should desire him. Another, "'He looked like an ordinary person. "'Yet he was despised and rejected by men.' a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide in their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So here is the servant of the Lord that came and he looks, he doesn't look any special, but the end was he was despised but what was he doing through all of this? Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was what? Pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the whole fact that Jesus came to be an atonement for our sins. All our, our sinfulness was placed upon him, and he became sin for us, and he died in order that we might become perfect in him. We might then have the righteousness of God. Verse 6, we are so different from him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid... On him, the iniquity of us all. He didn't deserve it, but he took our sin upon himself. You see this? Verse seven, he, the Messiah, was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers, a silence. So he opened not his mouth. Remember during Jesus' trial, he would be asked questions and he was completely silent. He wouldn't answer the questions. That was predicted about the Messiah. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out out of the land of the living? He died. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. He died for other people's sins, it says. Verse nine. And he made his grave with the wicked. On the cross, he was crucified between two thieves. And with the rich man in his death, he was buried in a rich man's tomb, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. All of this happened to him, but still he was sinless. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes a guilt offering, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So verse 10 See the two parts of it. Verse 10, he dies, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. And once that has happened, this Messiah who died is now alive. And it says, when he made his guilt offering, then he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his... In other words, he comes back to life and he is going to live forever, and he shall see his offspring. You see, you are the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And hanging on the cross, he saw you. He had the ability to look down through time, and he could see you right here. He could see you watching, and he could say, I see them, and it is worth it all. And I'm looking back now, after my resurrection, I'm saying, it was worth it all. I knew it was, but I see all of my children, and I'm so satisfied. It says, out of the anguish, verse 11, of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus makes us accounted righteous. We say that, we are what? Justified accounted righteous. So I'm sure he took them to Isaiah 53. Pretty clear as you compare Jesus' life, set it alongside the scripture here. Now, this is what the Bible says about the Messiah. Just to wrap things up. I'm not going to look at every verse. We can show you every verse here in a moment. I mean, you can do this yourself, and I'll give you a a resource for that. But this is what the Bible says about the Messiah. And you think about Jesus. He must be a descendant of Abraham, he must be a descendant of Isaac, he must be a descendant of Jacob, he must be from the tribe of Judah. The Messiah must be preceded by a messenger that would be John the Baptist, who came before. He must be born of a virgin. He must be born in Bethlehem. He must uh, come out of Egypt, spend time in Egypt. He must live and minister around the Sea of Galilee. He must have a ministry to Gentiles. He must work miracles. He must calm the sea and the waves. He must teach in parables. He must enter Jerusalem on a donkey according to the most specific time prophecy in the Bible, he must be presented to Israel as king on the exact date that was prophesied. He must live before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The Messiah will suffer. He'll be rejected. He'll be betrayed by a friend. He'll be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That silver will be cast down in the temple to purchase a potter's field. He will suffer, though he's done nothing wrong. He'll be beaten and have his beard torn off. He'll be crucified. His hands and feet will be pierced. He'll be numbered with criminals. He'll be cut off. He'll die. He will be buried with the rich. But the Messiah also must rise from the dead three days later, and he must be exalted, and raised up. These are just some of the things that Paul was showing them. Look, these are all the prophecies of the Messiah. Let's lay lay Jesus' life side by side by side. And what did they see? Well, what was the result? Look at verse 4, going back to Acts chapter 17, verse 4, back to 926. Acts 17, verse 4 it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. They were persuaded. They were persuaded by the reasoning of scripture and by prophecy, persuaded by prophecy. They believed even without the perspectives we have. Um, One thing you might have heard, but just to show you how how sure the word of prophecy we have is, is that some time ago, mathematician Peter Stoner applied the science of probability to just eight of these prophecies. This led him to conclude that the chance of the prophesied Messiah fulfilling all eight is one to ten in the 17th power, to the 17th power, 17 zeros. In order to comprehend the staggering probability, Stoner illustrates, he says, and we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. How many of you tried to drive through Texas, anybody? It's big, right? It's big, it's big. And so you take... Uh, 10 to the 17th power would be covering the entire state of Texas two feet deep with 50-cent 50, uh, 50 pieces. You know, maybe you don't use those, but they're 50-cent pieces. And so you take one of those and you mark it any way you want. Put an X with a felt tip marker, or whatever. You put that on that coin. And then we mix all the coins up thoroughly, all of them around the state of Texas, thoroughly mix them up. Then we blindfold you and we say, okay, you have one chance, pick up any coin, any coin blindfolded, folded, and that must be the right coin. What's the chances of that happening? One in 10 to the 17th power. You see that? he says, just the same chance that the prophets would have writing just eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they were writing in their own wisdom. This means that the fulfillment of just eight prophecies alone proves that God inspires the writing of these eight prophecies to a definiteness, which Lacks only one chance in ten to the seventeenth power of being absolute. And bottom line, if all that tr- you can trust the book. You can believe in Jesus. There's reason to believe in Jesus. And God busts through the darkness. And he opens eyes today and we share the gospel and the Holy Spirit does that. As as we share the word of the cross, it's the power of God for salvation for everybody who believes. Now, I have something for you that is a, um, it's 44 prophecies of Jesus Christ fulfilled. And you can visit calvaryphx.com slash Jesus and it's on our website, and you can compare. Uh, many of the prophecies that I went through will be there. There are 44 prophecies of Jesus Christ fulfilled, the prophecy, the Old Testament where it's, it's referenced, and then the New Testament fulfillment. And so that's at calvaryphx.com Jesus. The list of the 44 prophecies will be there. And I think that'll be fun and helpful.
3: are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divine.
1: Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866 That's 602
0: following program is called equipping the saints
4: hello heart and soul listeners i'm pastor greg lundstedt and i'm so glad that i can share my series from equipping the saints with you i pray that god will grow each and every one of you in christ through this series but these men revile things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them. So you have these bad guys who are in the church and they're reviling Satan and his demons, all that stuff. That's an evidence something's wrong because they're not submitting to the authority of the Lord who is the only one to revile them. It's an authority issue. God's authority. He is the one to bring about their judgment, not man. And they don't even tremble. You see, later on we'll see they promise you freedom from sin, but ultimately they despise authority because they're self-willed. And in their ignorance, just like animals that act on impulse, not reason. I had a problem with this because I got a dog, but as I looked at this, I realized what Peter was saying. But verse 12, but like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. He's talking about wild animals, okay? They function by instinct. They're captured and killed. And within that, notice what he says. Reviling where they have no knowledge. That's speaking to the bad guys. They don't have understanding. They don't understand what they are doing, and they're doing it in arrogance. Will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed? Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong just like those animals are destroyed, ultimately false teachers will be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed. The term destroyed here speaks of ruin, not annihilation. You know, when someone is destroyed in hell forever, body and soul in hell, that doesn't mean they're annihilated and they no longer exist. That means they are ruined forever and ever because they're in hell because of their sin. Just like the animals, these are going to be destroyed. And notice what he says, verse 13. Suffering wrong for the wages of doing wrong. Suffering wrong for the wages of doing wrong. The term suffering wrong may not be the best translation. Really, it speaks of suffering harm. Harm. Or being harmed. Well, why are false teachers going to suffer harm? They are going to suffer harm as the wage of doing wrong. They're going to be destroyed and suffer harm. They're going to suffer harm. They're going to suffer forever and ever and ever for their sins. As the wage of the paycheck for doing wrong. You could translate it this way suffering harm as the wage of literally unrighteousness. You see, these guys especially deserve judgment, their judgment's going to be severe. But anyone who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is in their sin. It's unrighteous. You will suffer the wage of that. You will suffer eternal harm for your unrighteousness because God is a just God. But in his justice, he is also a loving God who sent Jesus to die for us to pay the full penalty. He suffered for us instead. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. We were unrighteous when we trusted in Christ. We are righteous. But if you stay in your unrighteousness, you're going to suffer harm for your unrighteous deeds, for your wrong actions. So then we see here, false teachers at heart are reviling rebels. They are daring and self-willed who despise authority, ultimately Christ and his authority over them. You see, it's not just yelling at those angels. It's really the authority of Christ over them, you see, because it's God's place to revile the demons and Satan, not ours. Now, notice they're also characterized by the fact that they revel. They revel. They are stains and blemishes in the church who actually receive internal joy by deceiving believers for their own gain. This is, it's like, man, can someone actually be that way? Yes. Yes, they can, because God says so. Look at the middle of verse 13. They count it a pleasure. To revel in the daytime. We're going to talk about that in a minute. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Remember, they're among you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. The term revel here, translated in the middle of 13 and in the end, reveling, came to speak of a way of life, of luxurious living. That's what it came to speak of. It speaks of splendor. It speaks in this context of wrongfully enjoying something as your lifestyle. As your lifestyle. It's pleasureful. Delighting in something wrong. They revel. They delight in something wrong. And notice the second half of verse 13 through 14. It speaks of these false teachers internal realities and behavior in the church remember these false teachers would be among you chapter 2 verse 1 right they're going to be in the body of christ they're going to rise up at different times and different places they're going to be in the body of christ and so within this horrid description what's going on inside these people notice they reckon it joy not to go through trials but to delight in their deceptions they count it, middle of verse 13, a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They count it a pleasure to revel. The term counted is the term translated other places, reckon, or it means to think, to make a mental note. It doesn't have emotions. It's just putting something on the ledger. I account this this way. They count it pleasure. Pleasure to revel in the daytime. The term pleasure speaks of enjoyment or joy. They delight in wrong actions. Why does God share this with us? Because we need to see how bad they really are, right? Because it's hard for us to acknowledge it. Like I shared in the beginning, we can look at someone out there who's doing bad things. And go, oh, yeah, they're bad. But when someone around us is doing that, you go, well, you know. Well, if the deeds reveal that, this is where the heart is at. We need to see this. It reveals how dangerous people are. There are dangerous people out there. There are liars, there are deceivers, there are dangerous people out there and there are dangerous people in the church. We need to see it. It is hard for us to fathom this, but we need to go to the Word of God and allow the Word of God to renew our hearts. Notice, they enjoy and delight in deceiving Believers, end of 13, they enjoy and delight in destructive heresies, verse 1, luring unstable souls, verse 15, enticing arrogant, empty, bifeshy words, verse 18. They enjoy and delight by exploiting with false words. They enjoy what they do. These men or women receive perverse delight in their wrong actions. They get perverse delight in it. You wonder why would people twist Scripture Why would they do that? Why would they mold their words? Why would they lie to you? Why would they manipulate you? Why would they flatter you? Why would they do that? Well, here, middle of verse 13, it says, they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, I was wondering, what does this term in the daytime mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? I think it's metaphorical here. It points to the reality that they're doing this in the open in the church. It's in the open. And they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, but... Many people do not, and they revel in it. Notice the end of thirteen, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, as they carouse with you. The term carouse came to speak of you know a fellowship meal. You'll see in Jude it speaks of you know a love feast in a sense. They're coming together. It's the fellowship of the body of Christ, darling, and they revel in that. They revel in their, what does it say? Deceptions. They revel in their deceptions. Pretty straightforward, pretty scary when you think about it, that people can be like this, right? That they could be like this. Reveling in their deceptions. Notice what he says here. There are also stains and blemishes. Look at middle of verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, they are stains and blemishes. These are people who deceive. They are those who would have known the Lord Jesus as Savior, not as a personal Savior, but they know about the Lord and Savior. You'll see that in verses 21 22. But they have turned back to their own vomit. They've turned back to their old sinfulness. They did not trust in Christ. They pretended to trust in Jesus. They knew about it, but they turned back. And they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. And notice this phrase here. They are, continually habitually, stains and blemishes. What are they stains and blemishes to? Why? The context is the body of Christ. They're stains and blemishes. The term stain speaks just of that, a stain. Think of a white dress with a big jelly stain on the front, right? It's obvious, right? They are stains in the midst of those who are holy by faith in Jesus Christ. They are stains in the midst of the saints of the church because of Jesus who are righteous. They are unrighteous. They are stains in the midst of the bride of Christ, which is white and snow because of Christ. They are stains. And notice we have the term blemishes. The term blemish speaks of a defect or that even which causes disgrace. Blemishes. Blemishes. They're stains and disgraceful defects. And later on, we're going to see their defectors also, by the way. They appear to be believers, but they are not. They are stains and blemishes in the church, Peter says. And God lets us know that. And again, I mentioned this earlier, but notice he says they're stains and blemishes. And then he says, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with who? With you. They're fellowshipping with you, at least in this context. False teachers, when they do arise, when they do come in, they're not all the time, but when they do, when they do, they fellowship with you. Reveling, they count it joy and a pleasure to deceive you as they are with you. Isn't that terrible? term feasting or love feast, it's fellowship of believers. We know in Jude, they are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Hidden reefs in a love feast. What is he saying? As Jude verse twelve. That means that in your love feast, if you think of an ocean, you know, and you have the water, and then you have a reef underneath that you can't see. When you're riding in your ship or boat, you hit that reef, you're going to crash. They're there. They're in the midst, and they're going to cause you to spiritually crash and sink if you're not warned. They are hidden reefs in your love feast. They do it in the context of fellowship as they feast with you without fear, actually Jude 12. These wicked false teachers disguise themselves and deceive as believers among you, they say they are. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read from Second Timothy 3.13, where Paul says, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. An imposter is someone who portrays themselves to be something else. You think, well, do they know that? That deceiving and being deceived. Well, they must be deceived. Well, no, they're not deceived in what they're doing. They're deceived in thinking the outcome is going to come out the way they think. They're going to hell. They think they're going to get away with it. That's the deception, by the way. But they're not deceived. They revel in what they do. They love it. They live for it. It's their splendor. It's their splendor. That's what they live for. Second Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers or workers of deceit, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising. Well, we shouldn't marvel, right? But we do. If his servants, that Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as what? Servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. These people know exactly what they're doing. They revel in their deceptions. They're deceiving you. They're going to use you for their own gain and you will spiritually fall from your steadfastness if you allow it to happen. You will spiritually fall. And then notice back in our passage, they have eyes full of adultery. Look at verse 14 back in 2 Peter 2. Having Eyes full of adultery, and that never cease from sin. They have eyes full of adultery. Eyes full of adultery. What does that mean? That means everything they look at in the way they're just full of adultery. They're, they're wicked. If you know what I'm talking about, adultery, they're, they're, they're lusting. It's full of it. And notice he says, and that never cease from sin. I think of that speaking of their eyes. Their eyes never cease for sin. Everywhere they look, they're sinning. They're sinning with their thoughts. They're sinning in their hearts. Turn to Luke chapter 11, verse 34. These people who portray themselves ultimately on the inside are corrupt. And it is evidence in their desires, the lust of the eyes. You see, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And this is one evidence. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. They love it. They love it. Luke chapter 11, verse 34. The lamp of your body is your eye. And when your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, watch out that the light in you may not be darkness. The reality of what's going on in your heart is going to manifest in what your eyes do, what you look at in terms of your lusts on a continual basis. They never cease from sinning. What they look at is in the context of filling their own desires in every way, shape, and form, certainly full of adultery, but also they never cease from sinning. We're getting a view on the inside that we cannot see. You can't point to someone and say, this is what's going on. God can point to them, and we're going to see based on their behavior, then we can understand who they might be. But we can't see this. It is hard to think that someone who names the name of Christ, who is teaching, but by the way, you'll see later on, the word is being twisted. They're being pulled away from a dependence on Jesus Christ. They're introducing destructive heresies. Those things are going on. But it's hard to believe when someone's doing that, wow, can they really be this way? Well, God says, yes, they are. They don't cease from sinning. They're pretending to be believers. But everything they look and observe is in the context of their own sinful desires.